This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Ron Dermer, the ambassador of Israel to the United States. A native of Miami Beach and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and of Oxford, Ron moved to Israel in 1996. Ron has been one of the closest advisors to Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and has been Israel's ambassador to the United States since 2013. Ron, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Well, I'd like to consider myself the husband of the wife of the ambassador, but it's great to be on your show. <laughs> and I believe um, your wife was two years behind me at Yale Law School. That I didn't know. I was 98. She was 2000, right? I see. And did you also study with Aaron Barak when you were there? No, I didn't. I don't know if he was there. If he was there when I was, I should have studied with him, but I didn't. He used to go there for a couple of months and he used to take two students from Yale every year to do a clerkship in Israel, a comparative legal clerkship. So when they were deciding a case in the Israeli Supreme Court, they'd want to know how would they look at this case in the United States or in Germany or in a few other countries and so she was one of the two students who he brought over that year from Yale. He's actually our shotgun. He was the one who set us up. I was going to say, you must have a good story of meeting her. Did, were you hanging out at the Supreme Court or did he call you and say, I got a woman for you? The story is that my aunt and uncle befriended him because before he used to go every year to Yale, he used to go to University of Michigan. And my late uncle was uh, the head of pediatric cardiology at the University of Michigan. And for many years, the Baraks, both Aaron and Elika would go there to Michigan before they started doing that at Yale. And anyway, they befriended my aunt and uncle. And my aunt in particular was very involved in different projects in Israel, would come to Israel a couple times a year. And one time she came and she asked me to come to dinner with her and the Baraks. And he was then the sitting chief justice of the Supreme Court. I actually was extremely critical of what was happening with the court because I saw a trajectory that the court that then was sort of above sort of politics was getting into a lot of disputes that otherwise, or that previously it had not gotten into. And, you know, Barack had actually created a bit of a constitutional revolution within Israel and essentially asserted the power to strike down acts of the Knesset, very much like John Marshall did in the United States. Although in Israel, it wasn't a constitution, it was much more controversial. We don't have to get into the whole discussion for it, but I was extremely critical of it. And I always say that uh, my chutzpah is what got me my wife, because Barack, who's a lovely man and quite a humble man as well, he was really taken by it. I guess no one had ever criticized him in that way. And he used to tell my aunt whenever she came to Israel, why don't you bring him over when you come over? And so I met the Barak several times, really enjoyed their company. And one time I came to Aaron Barak's house and uh, my future wife was sitting at his table. So my chutzpah got me my wife. Wow. That sounds like the title of a great Jewish book. You can come up with a few other titles. Ron, your chosen passage is a great passage and very interested to hear your take on it, particularly given your diplomatic experience. This is Esther 414, the great Purim passage. So please tell us what happens in Esther 414 and why it's so meaningful to you. Well, this to me is probably the most famous passage in the book of Esther, where the Jews have just found out that Haman has passed this decree where he's going to wipe them out and cast a lot to wipe the Jews out on Purim. And here Mordechai then sort of dons the sackcloth and 
is mourning and goes to the court of the king and is trying to get a hold of Esther, who is related to him, and she's sitting there as the queen, and he's trying to encourage her to go to the king and sort of plead for the Jews. And it's one of the most important passages because for me, what's fascinating about it, if you actually read the passage very carefully, because the way I think we normally, when we think about it, say this moment where there's great danger to the Jewish people, Mordechai goes to Esther, who he has placed in this royal court and became the queen of Persia. And Mordechai goes to her to plead for the life of the Jews. And Esther goes into Ahasuerosh, the king, and, you know, fasts for three days and goes to see the king and saves the Jewish people. That's how a lot of people who remember the story of Purim as children, that's how they recall it. But actually, if you look at the text, what happens is actually quite different. First of all, when the story of Esther comes in, before we get to this passage and why I think it's so meaningful, before Esther comes in, she actually at this pinnacle and this moment of great tension, when she walks into the royal court and no one can come into the royal court without the king's scepter being put down, you can't just walk in to see the king, which is something that Esther says to Mordechai, if you do that unannounced, you'll be put to death. And so it's an act of great courage for her to go in. And the way we understand it is she walked in and the king said, lowered his scepter and said, you know, up to half the kingdom you can have. And she asked the king to save the Jews. But actually, that's not what happened. She walked in. And when the king lowers his scepter, he said, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. And what does Esther ask for? She asked for the king to come to a party at that moment of great tension. And then the next day when they have the party and Haman is invited as well, again, she asked the king to come to a party. And it's only the third time where she tells him here, there is this person who's trying to destroy all the Jews. And the king says, well, who is that person? And she points to Haman and says, he is the one who is trying to do it. And the reason why I think it's important is because I don't think that the zealots historically have done very well in Jewish history. Meaning the way that a lot of people think about things is be a person of conviction, be a person of principle, go into the breach, take your stand and let the chips fall where they may. That's the romantic vision, right? Yeah, but in fact, Esther proves herself to be incredibly uh, gifted at navigating. And it's the navigators who actually win. The only time in the Bible that I'm aware of where zealotry is rewarded is in the case of Pinchas. And even then, it's complicated. And even then, it's complicated, but he gets the covenant of peace, and that's probably for another podcast. But usually, it's the navigators. And so, of course, you have Moses and you have Jacob, of course, a very famous navigator. And now, also, you have Esther who just plays it brilliantly. And it's not just what she says, it's when she says it. And what is the mood of the king when you say it? And I think people, as they mature, they realize that a lot of times you can have something very important to say, but if you say it at the wrong time in the wrong way, you'll actually fail. And you have to actually find that exact moment in that correct moment in order to say it. But this passage, the reason why it's so interesting to me is if you read it very carefully, right? So he says, I guess I'll say it in English, altogether hold this thy peace at this time, then relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house will perish. And who knoweth whether thou art not come to royal estate for such a time as this. So there's a lot of vows there. I guess it's an old English translation. But the interesting thing about it, for me at least, the book of Esther does not have the name of God, does not appear there. But to me, this is the greatest 
statement of faith that is ever made in any of the books of the Bible. Because what Mordechai is saying is that the Jews will be saved. There's no doubt in his mind that the Jews will be saved. He doesn't say the Jews will be saved if you, Esther, save them. He said the Jews will be saved. Relief and deliverance will come to the Jews. Of that, he has no doubt. Now, mind you, what is the context? You just have a decree of Haman to completely wipe out and murder, exterminate all the Jewish people. It's an ancient Hitler has decided who has is the second most powerful person in the kingdom and who has literally the ring of the king. And we know he has great power. And one of the reasons why we know he totally controls things is if you go back and you look at the Megillah, what you'll find there is something very strange. I don't know if you ever noticed it, but usually we remember that Haman goes to the king and he asks him for permission to murder all the Jews to get rid of this Jewish people that are dispersed across all of these countries and don't follow the rules of the king and have their own separate laws. And then the king says yes. And then you think, well, then Mordechai would draw the lot and determine when he's going to kill them. But it actually works the opposite in the story. Haman draws the lot first and then goes to the king. And only somebody with supreme confidence that he's in complete control of the situation would already draw the lot on which day he's going to exterminate the Jews and annihilate the Jews and then go to the king is almost a formality to get his rubber stamp, okay? So you have this decree happening from this person from Amalek, which in Jewish tradition is the epitome of evil. And it is during this decree where Mordechai goes into the courtyard in sackcloth and tells Esther, hey, Esther, the Jews will be saved. That's not a question. He has no doubt that the Jews are gonna be saved. There's no tactics anywhere that would suggest the Jews would be saved. He just has the faith the Jews will be saved. He has no evidence, no data, no nothing except faith. That's correct, which is why it's the greatest statement of faith, because it is under this cloud of the potential annihilation of the Jewish people who are powerless. And then Mordechai says, I know the Jews are going to be saved. His question that he says to Esther, will you and your father's house be saved? Meaning if you do not act now, you and your father's house, which is his own house, because they're from the same family, he's saying, we will not be saved. The Jews are going to be saved. You know, you know, salvation will come to the Jews from another quarter. But the question is whether we will be saved. And the reason why this is important, if you know your Bible, and I assume you do, because, you know, you are the husband of the rabbi. The rabbi's husband, that's right. The rabbi's husband. This is not round one in the battle between Amalek and the Jews. It's actually round three. The first round takes place in Shemot. Yeah, actually, I think 17, around there. So, you know, the Jews leave Egypt. You got the 10 plagues, split the sea, all the miracles, take down the greatest power of its time, Egypt. And when the Jews are on their way to their next destination to go to Sinai and to fulfill their mission, or at least to get their marching orders for their mission, uh, then Amalek goes out of their way to attack the Jews. For no conceivable reason do they attack the Jews because the whole idea, I think, in Jewish tradition of Amalek is they are the people who are seeking to deny God's existence in the world. Right. While the Amaleks attack us, we're hungry, thirsty, and mutinous, as weak as can be, yet he still attacks us. And then it says there'll be an Amalek in every generation. Right. And so I see it as a primordial battle between good and evil, where the mission of the Jewish people is to bring the idea of God into the world. And the mission of Amalek is to deny God's existence in the world. And so you have this great clash. 
and you have the image of Moses being there and having his arms propped up while they're fighting Amalek. And what's interesting is God, who we just learned has completely taken the Jews out of Egypt. No one intervened. There was no Jewish army that destroyed the Egyptians. All the plagues were done by God. The splitting of the sea was all by God. And yet God doesn't destroy Amalek. It's the Jews who have to actually destroy the Malik. They have to fight for it and they have to be propped up in order to do it. It's a partnership. Moses has his hand stretched and then God gives them the strength and they execute it. Correct. And it means, I think, that in confronting evil, we can't rely on God. We have to do it ourselves. But that's round one between the Jews and Amalek. And round two with the Jews and Amalek is in the book of Kings with Saul, the story of Saul, where Saul is commanded to wipe out the entire nation down to the last, I guess, hair on the last goat. It's everything. It's uh, men, women, children. I mean, you name it. He was supposed to completely wipe it out, Saul. And Saul does not do it. He saves the king, which is very interesting. You say to yourself, why didn't Saul, the first king of Israel, why didn't he save a child? Why did he save the king? Maybe one king wants to save another king. He does not wipe out Amalek. And he actually, because of that decision to not wipe out Amalek and to save Agag, the king of the Amalekites at the time, the kingdom is taken away from him. Samuel actually says, you have failed to abide by the world word of God. And basically the kingdom is taken away from him and David is anointed in his place just by that one failure of Saul to fulfill the commandment of God, which is another, if you want to talk about that, why that was such a grievous offense. But this Agag, this king, according to Jewish tradition, he is the ancestor of Haman. And it says in the book of Esther that Haman is the Agagi, is the Agagite. Now, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and Mordechai is Ishimini, is from Benjamin. Mordechai and Esther are both from the same tribe. And Mordechai is now in this passage, is pleading to Esther. He's saying, look, the Jews are going to be saved. Of this, I have no doubt. The question is whether you and your father's house, which means us and our father's house, whether we will perish, because now we have a chance to actually make up for the mistake that was made generations before with our ancestor Saul, where he didn't actually do the right thing. He didn't play his role in this long story of Jewish history. He had failed. And to that, the kingdom was taken away from him. And now you have round three where Mordechai is telling Esther, you need to go and see the king and do this because this may be the very reason why you were put in this position. And we have to do everything that we can do in our power to bring about this salvation. So the issue for Mordechai and why it's such a strong testament of faith is not whether the Jews are going to be saved. It's whether or not Esther will be an instrument in that salvation. What her role is going to be. Now, it's so interesting that you say that this is the greatest expression of faith in the Bible in a book that doesn't mention God, because the faith is also expressed through a question. The last clause of this passage is, and who knows whether for a time like this you have attained the kingdom. So it's a statement of faith that's asked in a question. Normally, people would think statements of faith are issued confidently and with forthright conviction. But here it concludes in a question. Who knows? No, but I don't think that's the issue of the faith. The faith is when he says, That's a statement. Mordechai says that salvation will come to the Jews, period. That's not a question. He is only asking, maybe your role in this is that you were in this royal house, meaning 
he doesn't know for sure what role he or Esther will play, whether they will be able to make up for the historic mistake that was made by their ancestor Saul when he faced Agag. But he does want Esther to act. And I think what he's trying to instruct her through a question is, think, Esther, is this your mission? Exactly. And she agrees to this and develops the courage. He gives her that mission and she goes in and she asks the people to fast for her and she goes in. But if you look at the text that way, you see that the traditional way of looking at Esther going in to save the Jews is only partially correct. Really, what she's going in to do is to save herself and her family. And in doing that, she saves the Jewish people. And why, for me, that's so important is because I think in life, we're all put in different places in different times, and we all can have an impact. So at the same time where you have this statement of faith that is so remarkable under the threat of total annihilation, and as you say, with no data points to suggest that you're going to be saved, yeah, the Jews are going to be saved. The question is, are we all going to do our role in bringing about that salvation? Are we going to hook ourselves to the kind of eternity of the Jewish people? And what Mordecai is basically saying to Esther is, God is, he didn't say God, but he's meaning God, is giving you this great opportunity. The faith of Jewish people doesn't depend on your decision, but you have the opportunity to be a great heroine. And here we're in 2020 talking about our ancestress and our heroine, Esther. You're completely right in the way that you look at this, God's giving you a chance. Don't blow this chance and don't blow it for our family again. And I can't tell you how many times at Mark, I have thought about this passage that perhaps you were put in this position to do this very thing. I can't tell you how many times I've told other people, perhaps you were put in this position for this very reason. Now, I think it's such a beautiful sentiment. And particularly when you tell people, secular people, I can imagine what religious people or observant people, I don't like the term religious. I can imagine what observant people say, but what does secular people say when we tell them effectively, who knows whether for a time like this, you're put in the position you're put in. What does secular people say? I have to think whether I've ever said it to a secular person. I don't think I have. Oh, well, because I don't know if they'd understand the reference. You have to be a believer that there is a destination towards history. So I have to think about it, whether or not I've told that to a secular Jew, because it's so popular in our culture. In which culture? The observant culture or the uh, Israeli culture? No, in, in, in general. I think general Jewish culture. I think, you know, the book of Esther. Oh, right. The book of Esther. No, I thought you were referring to this statement. The book of Esther and the idea that she did whatever she could in order to save her people. I don't think it's necessarily a religious message, but for the religious minded and the sense of that ultimate testament to faith, that, yeah, the Jews are going to be saved, but you know, you have to do your part. It's very powerful. Well, it's very inspiring to anybody devoting their life to service for anything greater than him or herself. It's the single most inspiring message one can offer. It lights a fire underneath you that you have to do everything you can. And the, the time that I most thought of this passage was when the prime minister gave his speech to Congress. 2015. And 2015 that we all have a role to play and we have to do whatever we can in order to help save the Jewish people. Now, did you consider this passage with the controversy around him giving the speech or as a part of something he said during the speech? No, no, no. The whole controversy before it, what he said during the speech, and if you go back and read the speech, you'll see that Esther is mentioned. Not by accident was Esther mentioned in that speech. She got a shout out 2,500 years later, a standing ovation for Esther and the American Congress. A great Jewish moment. Esther gets a standing ovation. In the Amer I mean, that, that's awesome. Exactly. Esther was there. Moses was at the end of the speech where the prime minister points to Moses looking straight down, which is another story maybe for another time. 
But yeah, there were a lot of things about it because the truth of the matter is, if you look at the book of Esther, talk about that speech specifically, but you have to take a step back. You look at the book of Esther, the whole tale really begins with Mordechai's stand, meaning Mordechai took a stand against Haman. And if you read the story carefully, a lot of people could ask themselves, why did Mordechai bring about this decree on the Jewish people? Why did he not bow down to Haman and save us all the potential disaster that came in the wake of his decision? You could look at it and say Mordechai was stubborn. He could have bowed down because Jews can bow to royalty as a sign of respect. Why didn't he do that? Why did he confront him? Because Haman's decision comes in the wake of that. And there's some interesting theories. You know, so the Talmud, I think, depicts Haman is wearing an idol. Because if Haman was wearing an idol, then, of course, a Jew could not bow down to that. But that's not in the book of Esther. It's not in the book of Esther. It's not in the text. But they try to understand because there is a problem. Because it's almost Mordechai's obstinacy his refusal to bow down that actually brings about this potential disaster. And ultimately, the Jews are saved. But I'm sure many of Mordechai's contemporaries at the time said, why did you do this to us? Why did you have this edict of annihilation over our head? You you, you were so stubborn. You couldn't lower your head in front of the viceroy of the king. And there's some interesting theories about it. I think Yom Hazoni wrote a book many years ago, I remember reading called Dawn, if you ever read it, where he says, well, Mordechai understood that the whole nature of the regime in Persia had changed. Because at the beginning of the scene in the book of Esther, you have the king seeking advice from seven different counselors. And then there's an assassination attempt against the king, which, of course, Mordechai is the one who tips them off of this assassination. This is like a real Persian house of cards, this whole story of the Megillah. But afterwards, the king, after that assassination attempt, then gives the ring to Haman. And so therefore makes him the most powerful person in the kingdom. And I think Hazoni's argument was that Mordechai understood that here was Haman, who is descendant of this people, Agagi, who knew what this man was about, who knew that this person would be trying to seek the annihilation of the Jews, and he better confront him early before he consolidates his power in the kingdom. And so that's why he took the stand. But it's not easy to take that stand because then it creates all of these series of events. But I should say the interesting thing about it is when Mordechai takes the stand, you don't know how the story is going to end. And at first it gets much worse and then ultimately it gets better. So the prime minister, believe me, a prime minister Netanyahu, and I don't want to say whose characters in this, who's Esther, who's Mordechai, who's this, and I think we have a modern day force of Haman, which is a regime in Tehran that seeks the destruction of the Jewish people and openly says that they are vowing to destroy uh, the Jewish state. They openly say it, they tweet about it, literally. So in our generation, We don't know for sure who Amalek is, which is part of our tradition as well, but we definitely have a regime today, one regime that openly calls to annihilate the one and only Jewish state. And it's interesting that the prime minister was the only leader in the entire world who openly confronted and who openly opposed that nuclear deal with Iran, the only one. And he had to go to Congress And he was invited, I should say, to Congress to give a speech. And it's still the proudest moment that I have as ambassador, because in going and giving that speech, I think he was fulfilling his most basic moral duty, which is to speak out when there is a threat to the very survival of the Jewish state. And he took that stand. And then after he took that stand, and there were many people who were very, obviously very concerned about it. It was very controversial and thought all sorts of bad things would come of it. With, even within the Jewish community. 
Well, these are the same people who said that bad things would happen when we moved our embassy to Jerusalem. There were people, I don't know if they were the exact same people, you had many of the same voices, but that was a U.S. decision. You know, the U.S. decision to move its embassy or the U.S. decision to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. That's a U.S. decision. This was Israel's decision to take a stand. And a lot of people, including within the Jewish community, said, no, this is terrible. Don't take that stand. Don't rock the boat. You know, go and make some sort of an agreement and make the best of the situation. Because you know what? It's the most important foreign policy issue of the president of the United States at the time. And believe me, Mark, it's not an easy thing to have to oppose the most important foreign policy issue of a sitting president of the United States. But when it comes to the survival of the state of Israel, you have no choice. And in that, the prime minister came and took that stand. And he took the stand, interesting, if you, if you want to really get into the perm weeds, there is one place where there is a scepter in the United States. It's actually in the American Congress. I didn't know that at the time, but there is a scepter there because there's not that many signs of royalty because America has an anti-monarchic tradition, but there is a scepter in the people's house. So, you know, you walk into the court and you make your appeal. Esther walked into the court of the king and Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I'm not comparing to Esther Mordechai, I'm just telling you the, I'm working the analogy, walks into the court of the people. And who is the sovereign in the United States? Sovereign in the United States. Who is it? Who is it? I'm asking you. You know a little bit about America. Well, we don't have a king. As you said, from the Constitution on, we oppose anything monarchical. So who's the sovereign? The people. Right. In the people's house, the prime minister of the Jewish state came and he took a stand, not knowing how things would turn out. But he took that stand when a lot of people said, don't do it. Don't rock the boat. Make the best of the situation. He refused to do it. And in doing so, I think he changed for now. The story's not over. I don't know if we're in chapter eight or chapter nine or chapter 10 or chapter 11. We'll have to see. But he changed the trajectory of several of the next chapters. That was March 2015. In May 2015, a certain person came down an escalator in New York and decided that he was going to run for president of the United States. No one knew that in March 2015. I certainly didn't know it. And Netanyahu didn't know it when he gave his speech. But somebody came down an escalator and he took a position right away on this nuclear deal with Iran. And that position was, this is a terrible deal. We should end it. It's a disaster. I don't believe such a decision would be made unless a prime minister of Israel was willing to take that stand. In fact, I know it wouldn't have been made. That speech also led to a bill being passed in Congress called the Corker Bill at the time, where it created a process where this deal would have to be reviewed every so often. And ultimately, as you know, President Trump got elected and had to review this deal once every several months, every four months or so, had to certify the deal. And it was put in front of him and put in front of him. And he decided, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to recertify it. And then he withdrew from the nuclear deal and put sanctions on Iran. And for the last four years, and especially in the last year and a half, Iran has faced these tremendous sanctions that it never faced before. Another thing that happened from taking that stand is what our Arab neighbors saw. What they saw was a willingness of Israel, which I also didn't, by the way, I must admit, I didn't see ahead of time. To me, the speech was about Israel's moral obligation to stand because of a real threat, a threat that I believe threatens the very survival of the one and only Jewish state. But there were repercussions. You know, there could be negative repercussions. There can be positive repercussions. This was a positive repercussion I didn't see is how it was going to be perceived in broad parts of the Arab world, because what they saw is they saw that this was sort of Israel's declaration of independence from America. 
Because if Israel's a vassal of America or a vassal of Rome, let's say, then why deal with a vassal? Just deal with Rome. But if Israel's willing to have an independent policy to take a stand on his issue that is so important, well, maybe if you're willing to speak out, you're also willing to act if you have to, to defend yourself. And with the perception that many of our neighbors have that the United States is withdrawing from the region, and this is something that is broadly shared across your political spectrum here in the United States, both Democrats and Republicans are not looking to increase their military footprint in the Middle East. The idea that the U.S. is withdrawing and you have this great threat, Iran, that is emerging, and all of a sudden you have Israel being willing to stand, that actually attracted our Arab neighbors. The prime minister's speech also was one of the key points that led to the breakthrough that we had in recent weeks. Five years later. Exactly. Because it showed not only the dangers of Iran, it shows the willingness for Israel to confront those dangers. And so when you think about this passage, yes, I believe this. I have to say I'm a person of faith and I have no doubt that I have no doubt that the Jewish people will endure. I have no not an iota of doubt in the eternal nature of the Jewish people. But the question is, do we all play our part in bringing about that salvation? Have we done everything that we could to put our people in the best possible place to defend itself and to secure the Jewish future? And I remember one thing I said to the prime minister right after the speech, when he finished, he came down and we were in a room together, just the two of us, and he said to me, So how do you think it went? And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, you left it all out on the field. And he said, what does that mean? Then I had to explain to him what the baseball analogy is or basketball. You know, it's really baseball left on the field because he knows a lot about America, but he wasn't born and raised here in that way. But he left it all out on the field. So, you know, he did his part. And I feel in some way that I did my part in order to change the trajectory. And hopefully the story will end well. Well, you certainly did, and you certainly keep doing it. And of course, thank you for your service. But what a fascinating analysis in bringing the Bible to modern times. Esther may have gotten a standing ovation in the halls of Congress, and her influence is continuing to be heard and experienced. Well, hopefully you'll get that clip of the shout out at Esther, because I remember, I think it was my brother sent me a text right when it happened. goes, Esther gets a standing ovation 2,500 years later. So when you think about all the people who are put in critical positions, who this passage would speak to, believe me, I think it's important to them. I think that it touches them to know that they've done their part to help secure the Jewish future. And that's really the question. And imagine if you had told Esther 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years from now, the greatest kingdom in the world in a democracy, you are going to get a standing ovation from the head of the Jewish state in the halls of the greatest democracy in the world, which will be thousands of miles away. I mean, she would not have known how to think about it, nor would Mordechai or anybody else, but it happened. And that's an inspiration to anybody. I mean, anything that any of us do could reverberate in a way that will be experienced 2,500 years from now. And that's kind of the great thing about living in God's world. Because I have that basic principle of faith about the eternal nature of the Jewish people, I remind people sometimes in Washington, there are many, many ambassadors in this town, probably more ambassadors in Washington than in any other capital on earth. But I can assure you, Mark, there is no ambassador of Babylon and there is no ambassador of Imperial Rome or the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Canaanites. And there's no ambassador of the of the thousand year Reich, but there is an ambassador of Israel. So Esther and her people endured. She not only saved her family and brought great honor to her house. And I think 
had certainly uh, in round three had reversed what happened with Saul in round two, but she helped secure the Jewish future. And so I, I guess it's only deserved that she would get that shout out 2,500 years later in Congress and the standing ovation because she is probably, I mean, certainly the ultimate heroine or one of the ultimate heroines of our people. I don't know how many people can say that their action ended up saving an entire people. I don't know if we have another example of that. She certainly deserved the standing applause. And I think you'd have to go to the clip and see how many seconds Esther got. She got a long standing ovation. Beautiful. So, Ron, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion of Esther, both from the text and its applications to the current day. Now, the uh, concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story of, he said, I ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Ron, in your years, now seven years as ambassador from the state of Israel to the United States, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? About humankind? You know, I don't... uh... Now, I studied philosophy at Oxford, but I don't think about those philosophical questions probably as much as I should. But what are two things about people, about nations, about diplomacy that you've learned in your last seven years in the position you've been in? Well, first, I will tell you that I was attracted to public service initially because of ideas. The battle of ideas is what attracted me to it, about how to you know, order societies and read all the great thinkers when I was a student at Oxford, I had a time to read for a couple of years, and I was always fascinated by that. And what I've learned over time is the importance of people, because ultimately you can have sort of billion ideas, but if you can't mobilize people to advance them, you don't really get very far. And I think the personal nature of politics is much greater than I initially thought. And I think it's important. I think it's important that even when you're having, and it's harder now in this stage because everything is so polarizing and so you know, partisan, we reach the point where it's very hard to actually have people, social gatherings with people who are on the other side of the aisle. And I can see this change that happened in a relatively short amount of time because I was economic attache in Washington between 2005 and 2008. And it wasn't a difficult thing then to get Democrats and Republicans together around a table it was getting harder, but it was still something that was doable. Now it, it's very, very hard. I mean, Israel is one of the few things that can bring a lot of different people together, but it's harder to get people on different sides of the aisle because they cast their political adversaries and opponents as enemies. And part of it comes from impugning the motives of the other side. So I think it's important to build those relationships with people because I think One of the things that is very, very important in politics or diplomacy and any kind of public service is trying to people to give you the benefit of the doubt. You know, if somebody, if you, if you're a friend, think about it. I'm sure you've got friends on all different political views, but people who you know well and you have those relationships with, you'll forgive them a lot of things because you know the character of that person and you will seek the good in that person and not the bad, and you won't rush to impugn their motives. But how many people is that? Five, 10 people? It's a very small circle of people that you can reach that kind of relationship with. But I think in politics, you should try not to impugn the motives 
of people who disagree with you. There can be legitimate disagreements. And even when we talked about Iran today, I, I never impugned the motives of the people who I disagreed with on that deal and said that because they supported it, they were seeking the destruction of Israel. I, I think Israel has enemies. Iran is an enemy of Israel. Hezbollah is an enemy of Israel. Hamas is an enemy of Israel. I think we also have people who disagree with how to achieve a common goal. And they could be on the other side of what I think is a very, very important debate, but I would not impugn their motives. And I think I've learned the importance of sort of treating people that way. And if you hope that others will treat you in that way, I think that you should heed that advice. So that's definitely one thing I've learned. And the other thing I would say, you know, the importance of interest in relations between states, because ultimately that is what drives geopolitics. And I think people don't especially Jews and friends of Israel, do not appreciate the transformation that has occurred in terms of Israel being a rising power among nations. And its affects our relations with countries around the world, relations with countries in our region, and certainly our relations with the United States. People tend to romanticize the relationship between the United States and Israel and think we've always had a strategic relationship with the United States. That's not true. For about two decades, we received moral support from a president like Harry Truman, we didn't really receive assistance. I mean, we received some economic assistance, but not military assistance. And remember when Truman in 1948 recognized the newly established state of Israel and became the first leader to do so, the United States had an arms embargo on Israel at that time. Israel fought the 1948 war with Czech rifles and the 1967 war with French planes, not because the Czechs make better rifles, because the French make better planes, it's because the United States refused to sell us planes at that time. Our relationship with the United States changed in the wake of the Six-Day War and then the Yom Kippur War, where we were seen as being a reliable ally on a battlefield and a very good investment. And people tend to invest in winners, and they think it advanced their interest to invest in winners. And that began to change the trajectory. But even then, in the 70s and the 80s, and even to the 90s, you really had Israel moving from a moral cause, because many people, for different reasons, supporting Israel in its early decades, uh, the background of the Holocaust and the sense of, of the entire world essentially abandoning the Jews during the Holocaust. There's several reasons why you had that sort of moral support at that time. Zionism, which pre-exists the Holocaust for a half a century and certainly was powerful in many quarters. It's a mix of many different factors together. But when it came to the question of whether or not Israel was an asset, or a liability to the United States, most people in the first two decades would have said Israel's a liability to the United States, largely because of oil and because of the Arab world. That wasn't even a question. They would support Israel despite the fact that Israel was seen as a liability. Maybe they did it for moral reasons. Maybe they did it because, you know, we're a fellow democracy and democracies around the world can be difficult to defend. But as, you know, Kennedy famously said, we're going to bear any burden and we're going to pay any price in order to do it. So they may have said, well, yes, Israel's a liability, but as a fellow democracy, as this you know, one and only Jewish state, we are going to support it. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I think if you ask people whether Israel is an asset or a liability, the answer would be, I should say, you know, who you ask and when you're asking. This or that, I won't mention names, but this or that senior U.S. official or president may say, well, Israel's an asset in my battle against the Soviet Union, its important partner, a pawn on the chessboard during the Cold War. 
and other people will say, no, Israel's a problem. You know, maybe during the first Gulf War, we're trying to get a coalition together and Israel makes it more difficult. Maybe when the peace process was in full swing, people said, well, no, Israel is an asset. But it really depended who you asked and when you asked them. And that was a very important question. Is Israel's an asset or a liability? And it was different in every administration. You had asset people in every administration. You had liability people. But it was also the same reasons why people said Israel was a liability, because of oil and because of errors. But now in the last decade, things have changed and people have not actually understood that they've changed so much. And also, what are the implications of that change? Like now, the idea whether Israel is an asset or liability, it's an absurd question. Israel insecurity, I have said, the first speech I, I gave as Israel's ambassador on our Independence Day in 2014, I said Israel's going to be the most important ally of the United States in the 21st century. And so that sounds ridiculous because I'm, you know, I'm an ambassador at that time of a country of all of, you know, 8 million people. Now we're, I guess we're past nine, but we're still the size of New Jersey, more or less. And you're going to be the most important ally of the United States, you know, 500 times the size of Israel, 330 million people. You're going to be the most important ally of the United States in the 21st century. And it's like, yeah. And I explained why, because of security and technology, if you have to choose one security partner over the next 50 years, and you think about a country that has a military that can defend itself by itself that you don't have to send your sons and daughters to sacrifice their blood to defend another country, a country that has a first-rate intelligence service that can give you valuable information to keep your own people safe and to keep other countries safe, a country that has a very good cyber capability, which is becoming increasingly important, both offensive and defensive, and to protecting you know, vital infrastructures that you have, and a country that has the capability of developing weapon systems, both offensive and defensive systems. So if you could choose only one partner in security, just security, for the next 50 years, who do you choose? America has many allies around the world, in France and Germany and Australia and Canada. But if you really think about it in those terms of security, raw security power, you're talking about really only two. You're down to two. It's us and Great Britain. Those are the two. But then if you add technology to the mix, and Israel being in you know, these fields that a lot of people talk about, you know, agriculture and, and water, but look at cyber, which has all the civilian applications. Look at artificial intelligence, where Israel's emerging as a power in artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, all sorts of cutting edge technologies that Israel, the quote unquote startup nation, or better yet, even innovation nation, is becoming the most important partner for the United States. And I think it's going to become more and more important in the decades ahead. So the importance of Israel in the calculus of countries, when they think about their own security and their own prosperity, is very different than it was even 20 years ago, and certainly the case 40 or 60 years ago, where we were not that important. So it's not like what has happened in recent years is that a wave of Zionism has spread all across the world. What has happened in recent years is that Israel's emergence as a rising power among the nations has started to impact our diplomacy and our relations with different states. It's states like India or Russia, China, Africa, Brazil, European countries, everywhere around the world. And it's also influenced our relations with the United States. And so the reason why I'm telling you that is that I think the romantic view, we are definitely Israel and the United States, there's a deep bond. And the bond is not the interest. The deep emotional bond is connected to values. And I actually think more than that, I think it's actually a shared sense of destiny because the United States and Israel are not just countries, we're causes. 
Now, it's very different. And those of you people born and raised in the United States get that. But if you were not, then you probably don't understand what that means. I mean, Holland shares values with the United States, but I don't think Holland's a cause. No offense to anybody from Holland, but I don't think it's a cause. But American Israel are causes. And I think that that connects us in the deep way, not only with the shared values, but a shared sense of destiny. But the interest is the thing that's new. The interest is what's new over the last 10, 20 years as Israel liberalized its economy, as its our technology came to the fore, and it's affected all, not only life within Israel, but outside of Israel and made Israel a global player in many areas. And I think that's what's bringing many countries around the world closer to us. And that helps us also advance peace. That's the argument that the prime minister makes from time to time, you know, often about Israel's strength bringing along peace because the interests connect. And I think, so the one thing that's a very short answer to a long question, but the reason I tell you this is that our interests drive relations with states. And now the enemies of Israel try to attack, or certainly here in the United States, will say, well, we don't really share values, which I think is absurd. And maybe that's for another discussion. Of course, we share values with the United States. We are fighting for those values under conditions that the United States uh, does not face. And that affects everything. You know, if you try to understand Israel's reality, then imagine America after 9-11. You remember September 12, 2001, where there was a sense that another attack was imminent. You know, the pendulum swings back between civil liberties and security because you're so concerned about your immediate security that you're willing maybe to make certain sacrifices to civil liberties, which is normal. And then over time, as the sense of danger recedes, you know, you want to swing back and you want to make sure that those liberties that you cherish are protected. But when you're judging Israel, just remember, Israel's been in September 12 for 72 years every day, and that affects it. So I have no doubt about the, uh, the shared values, but it's interesting that the old argument that Israel no longer shares interests or that Israel is a liability, that has blown up. It's absurd. Israel's a huge asset. 40 years ago, I think it was uh, Alexander Haig who said that Israel's an unsinkable aircraft carrier in the heart of the Middle East. But now that aircraft carrier is much more powerful than it was then and much more important for an America that is not looking to send more troops to the Middle East, but is looking to pull back or at least to reduce its military footprint Israel's importance grows. And in America that wants to maintain its technological preeminence in the world, the importance of Israel grows. And so I think one thing, I don't know if it's a philosophy, but I would say to sum it up, don't underestimate the impact of people, of the individual ties that you forge with people, and the fact that those ties can lead to people giving you the benefit of the doubt. And it helps manage a lot of issues that would otherwise be very difficult to manage. And don't underestimate the importance of people and advancing diplomacy, and don't underestimate the power of interest in relations between states and setting the tectonic plates that affect the ties between states. Those are actually set by interest. Navigating and taking advantage of the opportunities that those interests give you actually depends on people. Ultimately, you know, the interest will create the windows of opportunity, but in order to take advantage you got to make it happen. And so you go back to 414 with Esther. Exactly. It's the same thing. You have the ability to save the Jewish people, but are you going to be smart enough to navigate in the right way so that ultimately they'll be applauding you 2,500 years later? To seize the opportunity and navigate accordingly. Well, Ron, thank you so much for uh, your incredible service to the Jewish people, for your seizing the opportunity, and for such a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation on The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. And as the uh, 
the husband of the wife of the ambassador, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I hope we can do it again sometime. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that we haven't covered. Absolutely. We should do Pincus. <laughs> Until next time. Right. Well, thank you so much, Ron. You are the God of the break. If you believe